Hey there, history fans. Welcome back to the History Explains It All podcast, where we cover a variety of historical topics from the Stone Age to the Modern Age. I'm Lauren. I'm Alyssa. And on today's episode, we are covering, or recovering, <laughs> Ivan the Terrible. Yeah. Yeah. This, one, this one's a little late. I mean, it was, was supposed to be our anniversary episode, but you know, life happens and uh accidents happen with technology and it got deleted so yay technology so we get to redo this sorry we didn't have anything for the anniversary but we do love y'all before we uh continue on we have instagram and facebook history explains it all underscore podcast Today in history archaeology in the news photo Friday all get posted there sometimes we have polls for you to decide what episode you want to hear about. You also want to suggest an episode or a topic for us to talk about? History explains all at gmail.com. Shoot us an email. You can also put it in any Instagram comments. We check those out. And also, please leave us a rate and review. That's how people find us. We hope that you're enjoying this as much as we are. Shall we get into Ivan the Terrible? Go right ahead. Yay gonna be interesting that's true ivan the terrible was originally born ivan grozny or aka ivan vasilyevich aka ivan the fourth he had several versions of his name he was born on august 25th 1530 and he died on march 18th 1584 he was the son of grand prince vasily the third and yelena glinskaya the second wife of the grand prince when he was three years old, the Grand Prince died, and he was immediately crowned the Grand Prince in 1533. His mother, Yelena Glinskaya, ruled in his name until her death five years later, so he was eight when she died. When she died at the age of eight, that's not really an age that you can begin to rule. Normally have someone ruling in your name. And, well, that became a fight amongst the elite faction who was going to take over for Yelena Glenskaya. And the elite faction was also known as the Boyars. And basically it was a fight to control the Grand Prince, to control Ivan. And the two major factions were two families, were Shusky and Bolesky. And during their fight, Ivan was basically ignored and not treated well. He was left to clothed in rags. He basically lived in a dark cell. He was not given food all the time on a consistent basis. And, well, I don't know about you, Melissa, but if I was treated that way as the Grand Prince, and if I made it to adulthood, you'd be on my very bad, bad side list. Sounds about right, yeah. I would be very unhappy and, well, I would figure out a way to make your life a nightmare. I would make you suffer. Well, that's exactly how it was for Ivan as well. As he continued to grow older and began getting more and more of power and actual say as the Grand Prince, his apparent dislike of the boyars became very well known. 
And as a child, he did not have the ability to take out his anger on anybody or anything. Like, there was no such thing as a punching bag back then and stuff. So he actually redirected his anger to animals, unfortunately. Step in the wrong direction there. Um. Yeah, that's a very big step in the wrong direction. At the end of the fight between the Shusky and Bolesky family, the Shusky family became the most powerful and they took control of Ivan and his power. However, in 1453, Ivan did decide to fight back. And what he did was he accused Prince Andre of the Shusky family, who was basically the head of the Shusky family, of mismanagement of Russia and had Prince Andre arrested. After the arrest, Prince Andre was then condemned to death. He was basically found guilty. When Ivan turned 16 years old, he gained his full royal power. At the age of 16, he becomes leader of old Russia. So January 16th, 1547, he is officially crowned not just ruler of all Russia, but the first czar of all Russia. And to me, this always sort of seemed like it came out of nowhere because he's the first czar. So how do you get that distinction? Well, his grandfather, Ivan III, also known as Ivan the Great, had been given the title of Grand Prince of all Russia in the late 1400s. And being his grandson and now the currently oldest living relative, he gets now to be called the Tsar. Now, although Ivan III wasn't technically a Tsar, during his reign, he would style himself as Tsar in his letters. So he would sign his letters as a Tsar. And Ivan IV, as the one we're talking about today, was crowned at the Cathedral of the Dormition in the Moscow Kremlin. And during the ceremony, he was anointed with myrrh and given ceremonious signs of royalty, which were the cross of the life-giving tree and the cap of Monomach, which is the royal crown of Russia. And then he was blessed by the church. The cap of Monomach is essentially a royal crown with a fur lining. It'll be in our posting for this episode. I think it's something a lot of people have seen before, but maybe didn't know that that's what that was. And myrrh, Russia is very Catholic. Myrrh is very special and the blessings in the Catholic religion. Now, being crowned as the first czar of all Russia really meant a lot to the nation at the time, as well as to Ivan. Firstly, it sent a message to the rest of the world that Russia was now united under one ruler. And that ruler would also be absolute supreme, which he took that in a big direction. Secondly, it was also to elevate Ivan's position within the nation. In essence, at this time, becoming Tsar was kind of like the equivalent of becoming a Byzantine emperor. The position put him on the throne as the divine leader of the nation and presented to the world that his position was as part of God's will. Just a couple of weeks after turning 16 and breaking free of the boyars, Ivan ended up marrying a woman named Anastasia. And... Anastasia, you said. Tell you about them. He's very similar to Henry VIII, except he had two more wives than Henry VIII ever did. He had eight wives instead of six. Eight's a lot. Oh, really? 
So she was one of the women amongst basically a harem of women that were brought before Ivan for him to look at and, you know, decide who he was going to marry. And he selected her and they were married in 1547. And she ended up giving birth to six children before she died in 1560. Hold on, I'm sorry, sorry. The, um, Picking a bride out of the harem. I'm, I'm really getting Emperor's New Groove vibes off that. Yeah. Am uh, I the only one? <laughs> nope. Don't like you. Don't like you. Don't like your hair. Nope. 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 Just no. Lots of nopes there. She had been ill for a while before her death. And, of course, Ivan suspected that she was poisoned. Why, guess who, Melissa? Guess who? The Boyars? How'd you know? Hmm. Most hated nemesis, the Boyars of Russia. And he even had several of them tortured and killed. Head roll Heads were rolling, as they say. <laughs> there is evidence nowadays that she may have been poisoned with mercury. But you have to remember that at the time of her death, mercury was actually used in medication because they didn't know it was poisonous. Kind of like lead was used in, in uh, face paint and stuff in the 1600s. Exactly, yeah. So, there was a chance that she was taking it as a medication and it's what killed her. We're not really sure, but Anastasia was the most influential wife that Ivan had, and she was very, she would calm him down where no one else would. So her loss meant that his extreme paranoia started to escalate. He then married in 1561, only a year later, a woman named Maria Temryukovna. Sorry if I mispronounced that. And she was the daughter of a Muslim prince, actually. So she's from out of sight of Russia. And Ivan regretted marrying her at the end because she was illiterate. And she was not a very good person in general. She didn't treat Ivan's children very nicely. And she didn't even try to integrate a little bit into the Muscovite culture. She didn't try to do anything pertaining to Russia she didn't have to convert or anything but she didn't she did have to try and get along with the people yet yeah, no that did not happen and she ended up being labeled witch and in 1569 she died via poisoning something it was by Ivan's hand although we're not really sure and then he married a woman named Marfa Sobakina. That was in 1571. And again, very much like the first selection of wives, he did another one where several women came to the palace, like in a harem, and he had to go through a choosing and so on and so forth. And she was chosen. And unfortunately, she got ill very quickly after their marriage as well. 
there is the belief that her mother accidentally poisoned her with a fertility elixir like she was trying to help her get pregnant but it was just too much and her body couldn't handle it and she died and she literally died within a few days of her marriage to Ivan well that's really unfortunate well because of her death you know Ivan was paranoid before and then Anastasia died and his paranoia rose. After Marfa died, well, let's just say, you know that that line where you're like, oh, if I cross this, I've gone crazy and all that stuff. His paranoia crossed that line. It literally went through the roof. Yep. And he ended up executing several of his people on the suspicion of killing Marfa Silbakina. Oh, and his previous wife's brother, um, the Muslim princess, Maria, uh, somehow he had him executed. He probably thought there was some kind of conspiracy with the brother. Could have. I'm not really sure. He then married Anna Kotovskaya. Kotovskaya. She's number four. At this time, like you said, Russia's very Catholic, and you're not supposed to marry more than three times. Oh, is that a rule? It, According to the information I have, yes. I don't know if it's a rule in Eastern Orthodoxy in particular. I don't know if it's a rule in Roman Catholicism in particular, or if it's a rule pertaining to just Russia at the time. Do not marry more than three times. Well, he married a fourth time. It's definitely considered illegal and impious at that time, so I'm going to go with it's probably just Mother Russia. However, with Marfa, he claimed that they never, ever consummated their marriage. Therefore, it never counted. And so he married Anna Kultovskaya in 1572. It was not a blessed marriage. The church did not give their okay for it. Turns out she wasn't, she had a hard time getting pregnant. And, well, he basically imprisoned her in a convent where she spent the remainder of her days because he got tired of waiting for her to get pregnant. So, in 1574, he sent her to the convent, and turns out she's actually probably the only one that actually outlived Ivan out of all his wives. She outlived him in her captivity. He remarried again, of course, because, you know, four wives is not enough. In 1575, he married Anna Vasilchikova. There's very little known about her. Again, married without the blessing of the church. She was also sent to live as a nun only two years into their marriage seems that sending the wives to the nunnery is just the way to get rid of them and unfortunately it is believed that unlike anna the previous anna of kotovskaya who outlived ivan she died in the convent it is also suspected that ivan had her murdered we're just we're just doing great with all these wives aren't we it's a lot of murder. Yeah. Although, that's just the wives. Yeah. This is just the women that were married to this man. Vasilisa Melendieva. 
She literally only lasted possibly a year. She was previously had been married to a prince who had died in war, so she was a widow. And Ivan decided to marry her in 1579. However, it was found that within a few months of their marriage, he discovered that she was, uh, well, let's just say she was not being faithful to Ivan. Which, if you're married into royalty, and as a woman, you don't do that. You don't get to have affairs. Men, men get to have affairs. Women, no. Not even that. When you're the sixth wife of a man whose wives were generally known not to make it out alive, that that's some that's some Captain Howard stuff right there. <laughs> you're not wrong. He found her having relations with a prince known as Devletev. And well, part of her punishment was to watch Devletev being executed via impalement. Remind does impalement remind you of anybody? Oh yes. Also, impalement, very, very painful and slow way to die. And he then sent her to live as a nun. And she died in the same year from unknown causes. Conspiracy much on that one? Don't know. I don't know. I mean, it is suggested that like his previous wife, she was killed by him. So either that, the plague was going around. So she's gone. Right? He married again. Wife number seven, Maria Dogorukaya. Married her in 1580. This is a woman who is a descendant of the founder of Kiev, or I'm sorry, the founder of Moscow, Prince Yuri of Kiev. Like her predecessor, she had an affair. Again, I'm not sure why these women kept having affairs when you knew that you were going to die. Yeah, it may but not it have also, been necessarily common knowledge to them. But it also could have been, there's that, or it could have been, I'm going to die anyway at the man at hands of this man, so maybe I'll just have some fun before I do. Or they were stupid. Either one. Could have been any of those three options. And he again found her to have a lover. And instead of, you know, going through the normal process of lover dying woman going to nunnery he had her executed via drowning not a good way to go certainly not the worst but not good the final wife maria nagaya married ivan about three years before his death and she actually gave birth to a son for him dimitri however when Ivan died, Dimitri and Maria were sent into exile. It is unknown how, but Dimitri did die seven years into their exile. Maria herself was accused of negligence and again forced to live as a nun. She actually did get out of the nunnery and she did survive Ivan as well. However, she had to recognize an imposter as Dimitri. Very short-lived, he lived as, quote, Tsar, end quote. He wasn't really ever truly Tsar. And this imposter was, ended up being murdered by 
a very angry mob of people after he married a woman of another faith. And after his death, Maria then came out and said, this was never my son. I was made to call him to me. I was made to say he was my son in order for me to escape the nunnery. And so she renounced him and she died in 1608, 24 years after Ivan's death. Also, just his, oh, go ahead. I was like, I thought it sounded familiar. This was the time of the false Dimitris. Yep. Which may show up at a point in the, uh, as, as a weird history. It's very interesting. Now, just to also let you know a little bit about Ivan as the Tsar of Russia. He wasn't always known as Ivan the Terrible. Especially when he was married to Anastasia, his first wife. He had St. Basil's Cathedral built. And he had an army. He built an army up from the ground. There wasn't one. He conquered several places. He basically patronized the art at the time. And his turning point into turning Ivan the Terrible was in 1558 when he tried to take over the Baltic region, specifically Livonia. And he had a good friend known as Prince Kerbsky who defected to the other side he fought on the side of the lithuanians and he and ivan felt terribly betrayed and that's the beginning of when ivan started to turn into ivan the terrible that we know of that's one of the two major ones the one is also after the death of anastasia and then pretty much after 1560s everything kind of goes downhill from there uh, I'm, I'm going to talk about his administration, which there really isn't a whole lot about the administration as a whole, but there is a lot about the things he did during his reign. So we're just going to get into that because there's a lot. So despite starting his reign with a disastrous fire, which would have been the Great Fire of 1547, Ivan actually had relatively peaceful early years in his reign and was actually quite influential in modernizing Russia at the time much like Peter the Great would go and do as well. And some of his biggest accomplishments were, as Laura mentioned, creating the first standing Russian army, St. Basil's Cathedral, but he also established the Dimsky Sobor, which was Russia's first parliament-like proceedings, and then also began the Stoglavi Synod, which is the unification of church rituals and ecclesiastical regulations within the entire country. So now everyone was unified under Greek Orthodox Christianity and the rituals and rules that go along with it. This is something really interesting I didn't know about. In 1553, he actually established the Moscow Print Yard and introduced the very first printing press into Russia. And by this time, I think the printing press was not quite even 100 years old, if maybe a little less than that. Now, like with many new technologies throughout history, there were those who opposed the machine, such as the scribes, people who obviously wrote things by hand. And in fact, the hatred by those who opposed the printing press led to an arson attack at the print yard. And the print yard ceased production until 1568. And at that point, it would actually continue to be used as a print yard. And I believe today that the original building the print yard was in is now part of the Moscow University. That same exact year, 
that he brought the printing press in in 1553, Ivan also fell quite ill. In fact, many didn't think he was even going to survive. And when he was told this by his doctors, Ivan had the boyars gather and ask them to swear allegiance to both him and his eldest son, also named Ivan. Should Ivan, the current ruler, die, his son Ivan will become Ivan V, second czar. The boyars flat out refused to give their czar the support because it's not like they gave him the support anytime prior to this throughout his whole life because they hated him. This, of course, added to his already growing disgust at the boyars, mostly, as we mentioned, stemming by the abuse that he was given by them growing up. Ivan obviously got better, and what he did, he went on a rampage and went and set out to assassinate anyone who had stood against him and anyone that would not swear their allegiance to him and his family. Later in his reign, he would actually go on to expand the country and gain a lot of land. One of the areas he would gain is an area called Kazan, which is between the Volga and the Kazanka rivers. And this is a really big victory for him. And with this victory, he decided to build a monument to commemorate it. This massive project would become St. Basil's Cathedral. And over the years, there's actually been a legend that Ivan was so impressed by this beautiful building, and it's gorgeous that he had the chief architect's eyes gouged out or at least blinded the architect so that he could no longer create or couldn't go on to create anything else quite as beautiful. It's legend, but it's not true. Fosnig Yakbilev was the head architect and he went on to had many more church designs and also even went on to build the Kazan Kremlin. Now, while Russia didn't have much of a trade in the Baltic Sea yet, Ivan was able to correspond with rulers of Europe as far as England. And this can specifically be traced back to 1551. At this time, the Muscovy Company, which was formed by three London merchants, set out to Russia. And in 1553, one of those three merchants, Richard Chancellor, sailed through the White Sea and over to Moscow and then into the courts of Ivan. Very big thing to do. The visit impressed the Tsar so much that he granted the three men and their company access to the port of Archangelis, which gave them the privilege of trade without having to pay any custom fees. Very high ranking. The correspondence with the London merchants, Lauren, you'll like this, eventually led him to engage in correspondence with Queen Elizabeth. <laughs> I can just see the two major powers being like, no, you, no, you, 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 you. Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> well, I've, I've got something I'll, I'll finish this point out, and then I'm going to ask you a really interesting question. Because I love hypotheticals. Well, historical hypotheticals, at least. So at one point during their very long, years-long correspondences, Ivan even asked her, should it arise that it would be necessary, could he go to England and seek asylum? If the boyars, and there were a lot of boyars, should they for some reason rise against him 
and cause him and his family to evacuate Russia? Could he go to England and seek asylum in the courts of Queen Elizabeth? She said yes. They'd never met in person, obviously, but she said yes, he could. Uh, I mean, Elizabeth was cautious, but fairly benevolent. And she said, you could come if you need to, but on one stipulation that you use your own money during your stay. My court and my purses will not feed you. Good for her. Well, it's Elizabeth. She's not rash she... in her decisions. Well, no, I mean, she gave asylum to her cousin Mary until Mary basically plotted against her to kill her. Yeah, well, Mary, Queen of Scots was something else. Yeah. <laughs> But my my hypo my historical hypothetical to you was to imagine. First of all, Ivan never left England. I'm sorry, Ivan never left Russia, let alone for England. But imagine the first Tsar of Russia traveling to England and even just meeting Queen Elizabeth. Given that England was far more more modernized for the times than Russia was too. Imagine the kind of culture shock he'd probably get. Oh, just going through Western Europe, he would have been culture shocked to get to England. Oh yeah, you'd have to go through the HRM. You have to go through the Holy Roman Empire. Did you mean HRE? Yes. <laughs> you have to go through the Holy Roman Empire. You have to go through Spain or France. You don't have to go through Spain to get to England. Depends on which route you take. If you go through France, you go through France. If you go south and then up through the waters as well, it just depends on who's your friend and who's your enemy. Oh, sure. Yeah. Depending on which direction he went, he had to go to either Spain or France, depending on who was his friend and who was his enemy, and who would let him pass through safely and who wouldn't, you know? He probably could have found passage through Flanders and the Netherlands as well, too. Yeah, forgot about that. Yeah, he could have done that, too. But he would have been culture-shocked in general just because Western Europe was far more advanced than, than Russia was at the time. Oh, for sure, yeah. Not not just... It, it's also in the politics, too. Yeah. In comparison to Russia, Russia was very far behind in the 1500s well technically i mean as modernized as ivan tried to make russia it i mean russia really wouldn't become modernized like the rest of europe until peter the great i can just imagine him being smacked in the face with all of that and him just as he's looking out the carriage wide-eyed although although imagine even by this time because it's definitely the late tudor era of course imagine though him on a tour of the Tower of London. That'd be funny. In addition to Ivan being in correspondence with Queen Elizabeth and uh, employees over in England, he was also in contact with several Orthodox leaders throughout Europe and even into Northern Africa. After being contacted by Patriarch Joachim of Alexandria, who was asking Ivan for help to restore St. Catherine's Monastery, which had been attacked recently by the Turks, he had sent a delegation to Egypt. And the first delegation didn't make it, so he sent a second delegation. And most of that work was done by Vasily Osniakov, 
who spent two and a half years in, in Alexandria in Egypt and even wrote an account of his time there too, which I think would probably be really interesting to read. Again, going back to the conversation about culture shock, semi-modern Russia in the 1500s to England, but then you found a guy who lived in Africa and Egypt for two and a half years coming from Russian culture. That would be another culture shock. Absolutely. Because again, just very different time periods for everybody. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. So the first 15 years or so of Ivan's reign was fairly quiet. Mostly he was interested in conquest, reform, and modernization. Starting in about the 1560s, or in 1560, that all changed. In 1560, as Lauren mentioned, Anastasia died, which many believe that she was poisoned, as we mentioned. But then there also came droughts, famine, some unsuccessful wars, as well as the Oprichnina, which we will get into. But also in 1560, as she also mentioned, one of his advisors, Andrei Kurbsky, defected to the Lithuanian side, which was warring with Russia, and fought with them against Ivan's army, which caused a victory to the Lithuanians. This made Ivan obviously even more suspicious of the nobility. Partly due to his grief over his wife dying, the scheming nobles, Ivan left Moscow on December 3rd of 1564 with letters announcing his abdication. Now, it seemed like he was tired of all the boyars infighting, their embezzlement, their treason, and just had enough. And he's like, I'm done. I'm out of here. You guys want to rule? You can rule. Up to you. They tried to rule in his absence, but the boyars continued to fear the people and, and a possible uprising by the actual peasants and normal people. So after about a year, the boyars arranged to meet Ivan and begged him to return to the throne. Now, Ivan didn't technically abdicate. He was feigning abdication. And this was sort of, he was really into chess. So I think this is like some top tier chess level playing he was doing. And he agreed to come back to the throne only if the boyars met all of his demands. The most important were that the boyars swear allegiance to him and his children in terms of line of succession and that he be given absolute power. Also, he added that he wanted to have absolute right to condemn and execute anyone he believed to be traitors to the crown. After his return, Ivan set up the Oprichniki, which was the first political force in Russia, and members of the group, I'm sorry, Oprichnina, the members of the group were known as the Oprichniki. And this didn't last too long, but long enough. It lasted from 1565 to 1572, and it started as a personal guard for the, for the Tsar. And they numbered at about a thousand when they first started out. That's a lot of guards. Um, I'm thinking kind of like King Louis XIII's Musketeers. Going around doing the king's work. Had sort of free reign to do what you want. Yeah, I mean, but did they really? 
the Oprechniki or the three the, the Musketeers? Combination of both. I'd like to know both. Well, I'm not familiar with the Musketeers, but uh, the Oprechniki had a lot of free reign. If we're talking about Alexander Dumas' Musketeers, they kind of did what they want, and but it was more of a, I'll do it now and ask for forgiveness later situation well, in the hopes that the king did not chop off their heads true but dumas's musketeers is a romanticized version of an actual person from about 200 years before so probably a bit of both on that end in terms of french history what the oprechniki would do they would go throughout the land that was currently russia and they would target nobles, executing, exiling, or conjuring anyone who was against the crown. So obviously nobles as well as clergy. And according to a record from 1566, of the 12,000 nobles in all of Russia, which is a lot, 570 turned ranks and became part of the Oprechniki, while the remaining lots of nobles decided uh, they were going to be expelled from the country. Under Ivan's reign, he also developed a system that would later kind of become Russia's version of serfdom. Under the privileges of the Oprechniki, they confiscated nobles' lands and would not be held accountable for anything they did. In addition, they also took the peasants' possessions and made them pay even more tribute. So I would think and this is also going back to French history, kind of like right around the time of the first French Revolution. The poor were already poor, and now the nobles and the rich were demanding even more taxes of people who can barely even pay the first tax, and they're starving, and the crops aren't very good. But instead of the French Revolution where the peasants revolted, this case, this led many of the peasants to flee Russia, which decreased significantly the working population, and in doing so, significantly increased the price of food, particularly grain, which at this time increased by tenfold. Tenfold? Gee! Tenfold, yeah. Grain's always a big commodity, but at this point, when you don't have workers and the nobles and the rich don't know how to work the land... It, you're, it's going to be incredibly expensive to try to do it because you, I mean, it's kind of like beginning the French Revolution if the peasants fled Russia, or sorry, fled France, but also around the time just after the first wave of plague in the 1300s, the remaining peasants and and servants people had, they gained a whole lot of money because there was only so many of them to do the work. I guess positive in that aspect, but at the same time, I'm sure that it meant that people just could not afford a lot of food. Oh, right. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Now, in 1570, one of the worst decisions that Ivan ever made happened. At the same time that the plague was going through yet again, killing hundreds every day there was also famine and ongoing wars i just mentioned now because of the war ivan was as always increasingly suspicious of the nobles and believed that those specifically in novgorod which was the second wealthiest 
and biggest city outside of Moscow, would deflect to nearby Lithuania and then turn and attack the city, putting it in control of the Grand Duchy of Lithuania. Fearing this, he ordered his Oprichniki to attack and raid Novgorod, and the city was burned, pillaged, as well as any of the surrounding villages. That actually doesn't seem very smart, but it sounds very Ivan and his paranoia. Yes. Well, it gets, it gets a bit worse, but yeah. It's on point for Ivan. This became known as the Massacre of Novgorod, and sources vary on how many people actually died during this raid. According to the first Zokov Chronicles, it's estimated that around 60,000 people died after the five-week siege raid. The third Novgorod Chronicle states that the massacre lasted about five weeks, as I just said. And in that particular same chronicle, it lists that no one was spared. Everyone in the city died. So men, women, and children, as listed in these chronicles, could be tied to sleighs, and then the sleighs made to go run into the freezing waters of the Volkov River, where people would freeze and drown. The official records from the Moscow list that 1,500 of the nobles and 1,500 of the commoners were killed, so about 3,000 people. Modern scholars also estimate that after the famine and plague of the 1560s, the population of Novgorod was likely between 10 and 20,000 people. So they estimate that the number of victims after anyone else would have died of famine, plague, or just expelled or ran away would have been probably around the 3,000 that were actually officially reported. And not long after the Opodishniki were sent to fight in the Crimean-Russian War a few years later in 1572, they weren't able to prove themselves as a fighting force. They were a good defense force or like a mob enforcement force but they weren't an army and they did not do well and Ivan very quickly disbanded them. And it's even said that mentioning their name after the time that they were disbanded might even get you killed. Really? Yeah. He built them and then he's like, no, nah, don't ever mention them. They were great until they weren't great. Until you didn't. It's kind of like well, people who have issues in terms of narcissism are, this person is great until they longer serve my purposes, then they're out and I don't want to hear of them ever again. Now, he's obviously paranoid about the nobility, and he's increasingly also paranoid about the church. And as we mentioned, after wife number three, four, you know, four, five, six, seven, eight, were not recognized by the church, he decided once again that he was going to resign his throne or at least pretend to do so. In 1575, he promoted his statesman of the Tatar region, Simon Bekbulakovich, as the new grand prince, overstepping his own son, Ivan. Simon reigned for about a year, likely all the while being just a puppet under Ivan, who was directing him from afar. During this time, Simon was also told to confiscate all of the lands belonging to all of the monasteries, and 
Ivan then returned to the throne about a year later in 1576. Shortly after his victory in Kazan, Ivan then turned his sights to Siberia, which to me, Siberia has always been a part of Russia, so it didn't really occur to me that Siberia at one point or another was not part of Russia. At this time in the 1570s, Siberia was actually under the rule of the Siberian Khan and the Nogai Horde, and their leader, Khan Yedagar, pledged allegiance to Ivan but failed to produce the amount of tribute that he had promised, so Ivan left him to be killed by the rival vassals. You can't pay me the amount? Page to the wolves. The new Khan, Khan Kuchum, then proceeded to deny any tribute to Ivan whatsoever. Ivan, obviously not liking this, sent the Stroganov family, who were uh, very wealthy merchants, to the area and then gave them permission to colonize the area. And for a time, they set forts and establishments, but they were constantly afraid of attacks by Khan Kuchum, so they asked the rival Cossack leader, Yermak, to help them. The Cossacks and the, the Nogai Horde were constantly in fighting against each other over land. So starting in 1580, Yermak, along with 540 Cossacks, began to conquer Siberia in the name of Ivan. And... Yamak and his men even persuaded and pressured those living in the area to switch their allegiances to the Tsar, often, often offering them even better conditions than, they were, than those that were proposed to them by Khan Kuchum. And when he was successful in essentially acquiring Siberia in the name of Ivan, he sent him a letter asking him to incorporate Siberia into Russian rule. But this didn't sit very well with the Stroganov families who were there starting it all in the first place, because their plans were to have the Cossacks acquire Siberia in the name of Ivan, but then take all of that land for themselves. Although Ivan was able to acquire Siberia and reinforce it with his army, Russia didn't actually take hold of the region until two years after his death when the city of Tumen was founded. So moving on to Ivan's death. Ivan lived a very interesting life. He died a very quick death. So I can't say there's much to say about it, except that he went into a rage, is what they think, and it put him into a stroke. And the stroke killed him. Yay! They think it was rage-induced during a game of chess. That wouldn't surprise me. I mean, he did like to play chess. He did have a lot of rages. All you have to do is look at what happened to his heir two years earlier. He killed him in a fit of rage. And he died in 1584 after his death unfortunately having killed the competent son his throne was passed to the incompetent one and his name was Fyodor well let's just say Fyodor put the entire country into a huge decline the father tried to build it up and Fyodor kind of destroyed everything I'm not going to go into details about that because that is not what the episode is about. 
but now you have an idea. And I didn't know this, but it turns out that some people have been trying to repaint Ivan, just Ivan the Terrible, just a little bit, although I don't think you can do that. They're trying to give him a little bit better light, I guess you could say. Which is really hard to do because the evidence all suggests he was terrible. Hence, he became Ivan the Terrible. Well, I think that kind of reminds me of Vlad Tepes to an extent. I mean, outside of Romania, uh, we tend to view him as a very evil person because of all the killings he did, which are documented. And we know he was, he killed a lot of people, whether it was war or just in general, a lot of impalement. But to the people of Romania, he's a, he's a folk hero in a sense. He's their, he's their savior because he saved Christianity from the oncoming Turks. So it all kind of depends on where you are and what your viewpoint is. Yes. I think they're trying to change the worldly viewpoint of Ivan, which I don't think is going to work. It's far too ingrained at this point. We're over 400 years into this man being known as Ivan the Terrible. Too late to change. It's very ingrained in our history books that way. We'll uh, finish this off with his legacy. His legacy as not just the first czar of Russia, but also obviously its first supreme and united ruler has had an impact on Russian history ever since. His governmental reforms and modernization have been the keystone to modern Russian government. And he would go on to ignore the law of nobility at the time, which was appointing people based on seniority or how much they could pay for a position and would appoint people based on support and merit. He was able to not only establish himself as a unified leader of Russia, but also establish himself as the ordained supreme ruler, answering to no one, and did what he could to try to curtail the powers of the nobility, partly because they abused him so much, partly because he's now supreme ruler. Now, although his attempt to go to war with Poland failed, it did help to extend a trade, which would later prove useful when Peter the Great would come in because then Russia would turn into a major European power. And although he established government policies and established correspondences with European rulers, as we mentioned, his rule wasn't a very good one, but particularly in the field of economy. When he ascended to the throne, the government was in absolute serious debt. And in order to fund his expansion efforts, he increased taxes on everybody. Not popular, always. Now, though he was successful with some wars, the ones that he did lose left the country in financial ruin. And this would lead to the end of his dynasty. And then after, because of the issue with uh, killing off his eldest son to be a success for Ivan and Theodore not being mentally competent to take the throne. And then you've got the false Demetrius. You had what was what would be referred to as the time of the troubles. And this will last from 1598 until 1613 when Mikhail Romanov, who was a cousin to Ivan, took power. And then you have the Romanov dynasty. Now, when we think of Ivan today, he is mostly thought of being incredibly cruel and given the moniker terrible. However, the word in Russian 
that we use for terrible doesn't mean awful or evil or anything like that. It means powerful or formidable. However, he wasn't obviously very much so against torturing and murdering people. And according to reports, his favorite methods of torture were boiling people alive, impaling them, roasting them over a fire, and the classic quartering people. Even his own family wasn't above his brutality. So this is going to be that quick bit about his son, Ivan. The story goes that his eldest son, Ivan, and Ivan's wife, Elena, that the czar, we don't know how, but he saw her somehow in an outfit or a state of undress that he deemed to be inappropriate. Whether he walked in and she was getting dressed and he didn't find that appropriate, which I'm not sure how that would happen, or it was an outfit that she liked and he didn't, we don't know. But legend says she was also very pregnant at the time. And when he saw her, he flew into a rage and then beat her, which caused her to miscarriage. And when his son Ivan saw that his wife was beaten, he confronted his father about it, rightly so. Bad move, though. With this behavior being questioned, because Ivan the Terrible did not like to be questioned, Dar Ivan lashed out at his son, and during their fight, Ivan struck him with the head of the pointy staff that he would also consistently carry around with him. You usually see him in a lot of paintings holding a big staff. And that particular staff, he would usually carry around so he could beat people with it. And unfortunately, that uh, blow to Ivan the son's head caused him to die five days later. Now, after the deposing of the Russian monarchy, and then eventually the installment of Stalin during World War II, Stalin decided to look back at the great leaders of Russia for inspiration. Not just at Ivan, but yet Peter the Great and all the others he deemed to be major key players in Russian history. But he was, Stalin, of course, was particularly a favorite, uh, a big fan of Ivan. During World War II, Alexei Tolstoy was actually working on a stage play about Ivan around the same time that Sergei Eisenstein was working on a three-part film about him. Both projects were heavily supervised by Stalin. Eisenstein had success with the first of the three films titled Ivan the Terrible Part One and intended to have a follow-up part two called The Boyar's Revolt. That didn't actually happen though. And this, just for probably funding reasons and stuff, but this majorly angered Stalin because he, he liked the first film a lot and it was technically probably like a propaganda-esque film and he wanted a part two. And he's quoted as saying the following to Eisenstein. I think the terrible was very cruel. You can show that he was cruel, but you have to show why it was essential to be cruel. One of Ivan the Terrible's mistakes was that he didn't finish off the five major families. The second film would eventually be produced and aired in 1958, but the third never actually happened. And I thought this is a little strange because, I, I mean, I guess maybe, maybe not. Ivan has a pretty corrupt reputation in Russian history. 
And I guess if you think back to like England's King John, we don't have any statues of King John, not that I'm aware of. I mean, he's kind of almost never talked about unless you're referring to Richard or his son, Henry, in that kind of context. But I would have thought there would have been at least a statue of Ivan somewhere. But apparently, according to one of my sources, the first ever statue of Ivan was officially premiered um, in Oroyal in 2016. Would have thought it would have been before that. But interestingly enough, there have been several operas about Ivan. There's The Maid of Sokov, The Tsar's Bride, Ivan the Fifth, or sorry, Ivan the Fourth. And there's also a ballet called Ivan the Terrible. And he's, as Lauren is a fan of this movie, he is a character in the Night of the Museum films. Which is always, they're always so much fun to watch. And his character in there is actually looking to conquer the world alongside Al Capone and Napoleon. I mean, you know, my boyfriend is, he likes to call himself a miniature cinephile. He likes a lot of terrible movies and when i say terrible i mean terrible like i can't i can't they weren't even filmed in a good way and then i said yeah i like night at the museum he goes that was a god-awful movie and i was like excuse me (laughs) 10 feet away now (laughs) get away from me do not kiss night at the museum did he just kind of maybe watch the second one without having watched the first one? I'm not sure. But I was like, your opinion doesn't matter because you watch terrible movies and love them anyway. Allow me my terrible quote unquote movie to to enjoy anyway, because I've seen the way what you've watched and liked. Judgment is occurring. <laughs> Well, speaking of films, there's actually a, a, apparently a very successful sci-fi film called Ivan Vasilyevich, Back to the Future. And it aired in 1973 and is estimated to have sold around 60 million tickets. Not sure how you get 60 million tickets. And let's, tickets were super cheap. But my, my, it was still called Back to the Future. Almost 10 years before the Back to the Future that we all think of. Oh, dang. Yeah. It's a sci-fi film called Back to the Future with Ivan the Terrible. I kind of want to find it. I think you should. Speaking of Three Musketeers and Russia, there is a, I don't remember what it's called. But I remember watching it on uh, uh, on a, I think I showed it to you, that Three Musketeers YouTube review. And there is a Three Musketeers in Russian musical. And it looked very silly. And just to close it off, obviously there's numerous books and biographies about Ivan's life that you can find. And to end it off with one of the best things, if you have not seen it, and you call yourself a history fan, you need to go along to YouTube and you need to go find Epic Rap Battles of History. One, because it's amazing. Two, because they have a specific one that's called Ivan the Terrible versus Alexander the Great. And it's not just Alexander the Great either. It's Alexander the Great, 
Pompey the Great, Frederick the Great, Catherine the Great. It's great. It's actually, I will have to say, I love epic rap battles of history, but that specific one probably is my all-time favorite episode. Because also, Catherine has so much sass. That is a pretty awesome epic rap battle of history. Yeah. I think I might, uh, after we end this episode, might have to watch some epic rap battles of history. I mean, just for fun. Yeah. I kind of, I kind of want to now. But that's, that's everything I've got on Ivan. Anything else for you? Nope. That, that was the end of Ivan for me. So I think we shall end this episode of History Explains It All. And we hope to see you next week as we check through history to explain it all. Bye. Bye.